Welcome to the Tanakh Talks Podcast. My name is Yaakov Beasley, broadcasting from Alon Shud on a sunny day in the hills overlooking Yerushalayim. It is the afternoon before Passover, Pesach, Tafshin Pei, 2020. As we all sit isolated in our houses, thought I'd share some thoughts about Eliyahu, Elijah, the prophet, who's going to make a big appearance tonight, hopefully bigger than we hope. And what I want to do is look at the final story of his life and hope that that can give us some meaning to understanding why he's coming to our Pesach Seders tonight. So let's begin. We're looking at his final story, which is Malachim Bet, Perak Bet, Kings 2, Chapter 2, and describes how Eliyahu leaves his world. And for those who've been following the story from the beginning, Eliyahu's first appearance was sudden and dramatic. He appears out of the middle of nowhere in chapter 17 in Kings 1 and declares a drought. Now all of a sudden his departure is just as surprising and wondrous. The middle of nowhere, we don't know that he's weak. We, In fact, in the last chapter, we on the previous podcast, we talked about his ability to send fireballs out of heaven. He clearly hasn't lost any of his powers, yet he suddenly... And in fact, the text tells us at the very beginning, as here's how, and it was when Hashem was about to take up Eliyahu up to heaven in a whirlwind that Eliyahu and Elisha go to Gilgal. So we suddenly have him doing this, as it were, farewell tour. He goes to three cities, very strange actually, from Gilgal, then to Beit El, then from Beit El to Yericho. And people have tried to figure out what the spiritual significance of these cities are. In fact, Rabbi Samet makes a very interesting suggestion that Eliyahu is, as it were, saying goodbye to all the young prophets, the Benedictim, who play a minor role, but a crucial role in this story, as if, you know, farewell, want to give everybody a goodbye tour, as it, well, as it were, he's going to give chizuk, to give inspiration and hope to the next generation that's going to take over, and that's Rabbi Samet's suggestion. But that doesn't make sense if you look at the text, because Eliyahu has always been the most solitary figure, even when he anoints Elisha's successor, he sort of walks off, and Elisha tells him, wait, I'm going to say goodbye to my family, and then I'll follow you. But we don't see Eliyahu and Elisha actually doing anything together. In the last story, it's Eliyahu, solitary, alone on the mountain, who confronts and sends fireballs raining down on the soldiers of Ahaziah. So there might be something different happening here. If we look at the actual cities themselves, we go from Gilgal to Beit El, Beit El, Tiericho. If he's trying to get away from, go over the Jordan River, well, Gilgal is right beside the Jordan River. Beit El, you have to, as it were, curl back in, and then he goes to a different crossing in Yericho, which makes doesn't make much sense. And for that reason, this is, um, that Mikra says, it must be, this must be some, Gilgal can't be the Gilgal everywhere else in the Tanakh. It must be somewhere different. Chaim Gavriel suggests it's called Jojulia, which is near Betel. But this also doesn't make sense. Why would I suddenly bring a new town in and tell me that it's important that he's there? It appears that just looking at the direction, he's trying to shake Elisha. He wants to, as it were, um, test Elisha. Are you going to follow me or not? And of course, Elisha says, I'm staying with you. I'm staying with you. I will not be parted from you. Which is, of course, the, you know... Why is Eliyahu trying to do this? We're going to see, of course, when we talk about Elisha, that his way of handling problems, his way of approaching the people, his way of talking, and the message he's going to deliver is going to be fundamentally different when we look back in retrospective from that of Eliyahu. So one can imagine that Eliyahu knows that Elisha is going to be different than him. 
He's wondering, you know, what connections does this person have with me? And Alicia says, no, no, I still get it all from you. I'm still staying with you. And even when the B'nai Nevi'im come and say, Alicia, do you know that your master is going to be taken from you? He goes, I know, be quiet. I understand that this is the moment of transition, but I'm not leaving him. Whatever else I'm going to do in my life, it's coming from this moment where I'm still connected to Eliyahu. So after three occurrences where the disciples come and they try to convince Elisha to stay and they come to this starts in Gilgal and to Yericho and Beit El, finally Eliyahu takes his mantle, he rolls it up, it's called an Adar in Hebrew, and he rolls it up and it's a question and he splits the yard in one last time and they both cross on dry land and Eliyahu says, okay, I guess, you know, you're going to stay with me. There are Mepharshim that suggest that the way that the water split, Eliyahu was testing the waters. If it's only him to go alone, then there'd only be room for one to go through. But since the water split to allow two people to walk through, through, therefore, Elisha must be worthy in some way, shape, or form. And now we come to the second most interesting part of the story. And this will go in ascending order because the way Eliyahu will ascend to heaven is, of course, by far and away the most interesting part. But Eliyahu says to Elisha, what can I do for you? I'm not going to be, I haven't left you yet. This is verse 9. Vayomer Elisha, v'yina p'tihishnaim b'ruchalai. Give me double portion of your spirit on me. And the Mepharshim, the commentators, wonder, what does it mean to give me a double portion? On one hand, there are those that take it quite literally, may I be twice as good as you. This is the way the Mesutus David um Commons let me have the power of prophecy at twice the level that it rested on you. And Rashi looks at him and says, understands why Eliyahu is hesitant. How could I give you twice as much as what I have? If I only have a certain amount, how can I give you double? And of course, beyond that, what is Elisha asking for? What is his sedacity? You know, Elisha, you know, Eliyahu's got fireball power. That's as high as you get. You don't get more than that. Why is what Eliyahu's ability is not enough for what Elisha is going to do? For this reason, the Radak and other commentators say, no, no. Pishnai means the same way that it says in the laws of the inheritance, a firstborn gets Pishnai. What does it mean? If there's four children, the firstborn will get two-fifths, and the others get one-fifth each, meaning he they get double others, meaning... What Elisha is saying is, please let the B'nai Nevi'im, this is the way they understand it, that Elisha is still bothered by the fact that he's been in some ways slighted by the people he met, the B'nai Nevi'im, who met them along the way and somehow consider himself, themselves superior to Elisha. Therefore, Elisha says, what does Pinchnaim mean? That acknowledge me as your firstborn. Acknowledge that what I am doing is, you know, I'm your number one student. But again, the question is, even if this is the interpretation, why? So I want to make a possible suggestion that I think works well with the text. Given the very strange nature of what Elisha is asking, based on either the interpretations above, I want to suggest a new possible third approach, and it goes as follows. Eliyahu was successful in one aspect, and he brought respect and honor to God's ways and God's prophecies and God's Torah. People saw what he did and they understood the power that God was still involved in the world. But ultimately, Eliyahu was not successful in influencing the people. When Elisha turns to Eliyahu and says, may I be twice as good as you, what does it mean twice as good? It doesn't mean that I should have more power, as it were, or I should be the number one student, but rather, what can I learn from you 
and how can I do it better? Because I'm going to have to follow in your footsteps. There's a recalcitrant nation of people who have been influenced by Ahab's idolatry, the worship of Baal. They are not faithful in their relationship to God. And therefore, how do I do this better? And that, I think, think explains Eliyahu's, Elijah's very enigmatic answer. If you see the way that I leave this world, then you'll understand what needs to be done differently. And of course, this leads to the third and most exciting part of the story. Let's go back to our text. And it was when they were walking, going, talking, and behold, a fiery chariot and fiery horses separate, and they separated between them. Vayal Eliyahu b'sarah hashemaim. And Eliyahu went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Now notice what happens here. They're walking and talking together, and suddenly fire comes between them, and it divides them. And Eliyahu goes up to heaven. What does it mean that the fire divides them? Looking back at Eliyahu's career, I think the answer is very simple. What is Eliyahu's fundamental tool, fundamental approach to dealing with the problems of the people? It's nothing else than fireballs. When people come to arrest him, he can throw fireballs out of heaven. When the people are there, he can bring fire down from heaven. But ultimately, just like the fire on Sinai was eventually quenched 40 days later in the sin of the golden calf, Eliyahu's influence is short-lived. Yes, people left the showdown with the priests of Baal at Har Carmel, at the Mount Carmel, impressed. Even Ahav, as it were, had been a, became a convert to Eliyahu's way for a brief moment. But ultimately, the change didn't last. And Eliyahu's fiery behavior prevented him from ultimately making long-term and meaningful change among his listeners. The fire divides between them. And, Eli, and that's what Eliyahu says. Do you understand that difference? Of course, Elisha is heartbroken. Avi, Avi, Rechav Yisrael, Baharashav. You, my father, my father, cherish of Israel, you are not just the Navi, you are the defense minister, you, your presence among us provided protection against punishment, and he saw him no longer, and he tears him into pieces. And Elisha goes back, and we will continue with Elisha's story in the next podcast. But what I look at in this couple final minutes is the real question. Whatever happened to Eliyahu? Where did he go? On this, the Mepharshim are divided. First of all, on a textual level, the Radak says as follows, says here is the redox understanding the storm raised Eliyahu from earth into the air above the sphere of fire as it were the medieval belief that the there's a sphere of fire there's a layer of fire above the heavens there his clothes burned except his cloak his flesh and physical form were consumed, his spirit returned to God. In other words, Eliyahu died. The Abarbanel doesn't like what the Radak suggested, that Eliyahu dies. First of all, he points out that the text never mentions that Eliyahu dies. It says he goes up to heaven in a fiery chariot, but it doesn't say he dies. Similarly, we know that later on, in Divrei Yamim Chafal, Eliyahu will come and reappear. This is an event that will take place after his death, when he sends a letter to Yeram, king of Yehuda condemning him for his brutal and slaughter of his siblings. And therefore, the Radak, the Abarmanel, um, team leans towards, therefore, the Abarmanel leans towards the approach of the Radak. The Radak says as follows, which, what it means is, this is the Radak, and it's more or less taken by the Abarmanel, 
that Eliel was taken to mid-air, to great cities fortified to the heavens, a lower place, entire place top in heaven, meaning that God's wind lifted him up to an unknown place. He remains there alive, as we have explained. And this is the Redox approach. Eliel is still alive in one of these celestial cities. And he proves it, actually, from an interesting read of the text in verse 3. Today God will take your master from over your head. Taken from, not that he will take your master, but taking your master from over your head. The Chatham Sofer gives a very interesting um, compromise. He says that Eliyahu's soul, Neshama, goes up all the way to heaven, the way the Radak does. But the body is still somewhere in the physical world, in, as suggested by the Raubach. And on the day of God's redemption, he writes, Speedily in our days, his soul will be closed in his body and will return like everybody else. And therefore, when he is revealed and perceived in this world, he is only garbage in his pure body. But when he is revealed spiritually, he only um, appears as a neshama, as a soul. Now, this is the discussion that takes place. The question is, let's look now at rabbinic literature, at the Midrashim. What do they tell us about Eliyahu? First of all, there's a whole series of stories. Eliyahu, for example, in the Midrash Rabbah in Esther says, that it's Eliyahu who comes, who appears suddenly as Harvona. And he tells Achashverosh, hey, you know something that guy Haman? He tried to kill Mordechai and points to the gallows that he made. He appears to Nachamish Gamzu in Tanit when Nachamish Gamzu is worried about, you know, the, his money that's been stolen, the gift that he was supposed to give to the Caesar, and he replaces him with the magic mud that Nachamish Gamzu has given us. In Tanit, he... When Rabbi Akiva and his wife are destitute and they're about to give up, Eliyahu comes and gives them comfort. This is the Gemara and Adarim. There's all these stories. Today's Daf Yomi, Shabbat, Lamed Gimel, Lamed Bet. He comes and he's the one who goes and informs Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai that the decree for his death has been annulled because the Roman Caesar has died. All these stories show of how Eliyahu comes and brings peace to the world. This is probably described best by the Mishnah in Edud, in chapter 8, where it describes what role Eliyahu is going to play in the future. Rabbi Yoshua says, I learned from Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who heard it from his teacher, all the way back to Moshe from Sinai, which is an interesting phrase, because how would Moshe from you know, know about Eliyahu Navi? That Eliyahu Navi does not come to declare people pure and pure, nor to distance nor to bring them close, but rather distance those who have come close by force, and to draw those near who have been distanced by force. Rabbi Yehuda says to bring close, but not to distance. Rabbi Shimon says to solve halakh disputes. And Hachamim say not to distance, not to bring close, but rather to make peace in the world. The Eliyahu's renewed role is peacemaker. He comes, he protects the Jewish people, he prevents dispute. Eliyahu is the man of peace. And this is so dramatically different from the way he is portrayed in Tanakh. And for that reason, the Midrash, and later the Zohar says as follows, and I'm reading here from the Midrash in Pirkei de Rabbi Yazar, chapter 28. It describes how Bnei had practiced circumcision, the Brit Milah, the, co- the sign of the covenant, until they split into kingdoms, and the rulers of Ephraim, the north, prevented them from performing Brit Milah. And then Eliyahu, when he saw people stop doing Brit Milah, was extremely zealous, swearing heaven would not reign upon this earth until they would perform their Brit again. Hashem appeared to him and said, now it's interesting which how quickly it skips through two chapters of stories. The Midrash doesn't consider them significant. What are you doing here, Eliyahu? And Eliyahu responded, this is chapter 19, verse 10 in Kings 1, in Malachim Aleph, I have been exceedingly zealous, Kano Kaneti, I have been very zealous for your covenant and for your priests. And Hashem says to him, and this is the way the Midrash puts it, will you be zealous forever? Are you going to be upset for the rest of your life? I swear to you, Ben Israel, from, no, from now on, 
Every time they do a Brit Milah, you will see it with their own eyes. On this, And that's why, says the Midrash, we set aside a special chair for Eliyahu that he should see every time we do a brief, perform a sign of the covenant, that he has to acknowledge, yes, the Jewish people still hold on to the covenant, still hold on to the breed. It's for this reason, says another Midrash, this is why he we talk about him on Motzei Shabbat. Why? Because he has to sit down and write down, yes, the Jews kept Shabbat, this person kept Shabbat, this person kept Shabbat. And on the Seder, the Pesach night, when we tell the story and we transmit from father to child and make sure that our history goes on, Eliyahu Navi is there. He has to come back to Kaddish Baruch Hu after going to visit all these Seders. It's not a Santa Claus dropping off presents, rather, or a homeless man getting a free cup of wine wherever he goes. Rather, Eliyahu is the one who has to acknowledge, yes, the Jewish people have not forgotten what a Seder is. And therefore he goes back to Kaddish Baruch Hu and says, they have not forgotten your breed, they have not forgotten your covenant, it's time for you to bring redemption. And that's Eliyahu's role in the Seder. As it were, says the Zohar, it's a punishment for speaking ill of Bnei Israel, for not trusting in the Jewish people. At times we may not appear to be doing the right thing, but ultimately there'll be... There are times when we may not appear to be doing the right thing, but ultimately... The Jewish people continue to believe in God and to continue to believe in his promise, and Eliyahu has to be the witness to it. And when he witnesses enough of us doing it, then he will bring, tell Hashem it is time to bring Mashiach. May he come quickly. Amen.